If you like to gamble, I tell you I'm your man. You win some, lose some, it's all the same to me. Hello and welcome to episode two of the official Motorhead podcast, The Motorcast. I am your host, Howard H. Smith. I may be known to you as the lead singer in UK thrash band Acid Rain. You may also know me from my own podcast, Talking Bollocks. But in this particular podcast, I am your guide through all things Motorhead. And specifically at the moment, with the 40th anniversary of the Ace of Spades album, particularly focusing on that album Rather unsurprisingly, let's be honest. There are a bevy of beautiful editions of this album coming out. Um, there's going to be hard ba- hardback book packs in 2CD and triple L- LP formats. Um, they feature uh, an unheard concert from the Ace Up Your Sleeve tour. There's the store of the album, um, loads of pictures you won't have seen before. And also there is going to be uh, a release of an ultimate fan pack, the collector's edition of Ace of Spades box set containing uh, a ton of Eras Pacific treasures and, wait for it, some 42 previously unreleased tracks so plenty to get your teeth into and same with this interview um i have known crusher for many years um having been you know on the scene for many years myself our paths have crossed he's emceed uh, gigs that we've played way back in the day um and uh, he's a, he is an all-round legend of the uk metal scene so whatever country you're listening in you're listening to this in um yeah see if you can find out more information about crusher um you will want to after this interview um crusher is just uh, he's a he's a timeless personality he's a great bloke simply put i've known him years and by the end of this interview you'll probably feel like you've known him years as well because he's just one of those really open chatty fun people to be around. You are now going to enjoy uh, the next few minutes in the company of the one and only Crusher. Oi, oi, H. Hello there, Crusher, my old mate. How you doing? Have a live. <laughs> <laughs> Against the odds, you're still here. Absolutely, mate. Fucking, I think everybody put me down for 33 uh, as the year I would be going, but uh, I'm twice that age now and still going strong. <laughs> uh, well, well, I for one am glad to hear it, mate. I really am. Um, Thank you. But anyway, I think anything that's anything to do with this album at this time is brilliant. And sadly, do you know what? I, I looked through the because um, I, you know, obviously I designed the tour program, and I looked through the credits on the tour program. Fuck me! There's not many fucking people alive from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the uh, unfortunately that is the um, that's the challenge at the moment um, with this and, album. And absolutely, and the worst thing being is that none of the band they've got. You know, it's still yeah. fucking. Think about it. They've all gone. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've seen the. Uh, the documentary classic albums by Equal Rock. Yeah. Uh, you, you've seen that, haven't you? Where yeah. they actually got them all back together. I think that was in, what was it, 2005? And they actually get them back, all, all three original members back in the studio. And they're talking about the album. 
and listening to it on, you know, they didn't get all three of them, apart from when they were playing. It was like Lemmy and Phil in front of a fucking mixing desk and then Eddie in front of the mixing desk or Eddie with his guitar explaining how they came up with the riff. And to me, that fucking documentary will never be beaten because it's probably the last time that they, that three, played together. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, and not just playing together, playing tracks from Ace of Spades. Uh, and, and when I say, when Eddie explains, um, I think he's talking about Ace of Spades, and he's going, uh, I could be wrong on this, but he's going, oh, you know, we normally do everything E, e or D, but we thought we'd try and do something different in G, right? And then he just goes into the riff, and it's like, fuck, yes. Yes, and he, he played it when I think it was supposed to be in E, uh, and it's like, you know, no, I don't really recognize it. Then as soon as he goes into the G, it's like, fuck, yeah, that's it. And it's, you know, it's like, it's so obvious that that's just such a brilliant fucking song. Um, and, it, you know, it's a classic, isn't it? I mean, it's a fucking classic song. Well, and, and uh, I, have to, I have to admit, um, I did... Um find a brilliant quote from Lemmy where he was, I think it was around 2008 where he was saying that um, he was saying that look, you know, yeah it's, it's a great song and I'm glad we're famous for a, a you know a good down but and dirty yeah. and he said, and he said <laughs> but you know I, 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 I sang the eight of spades for two years and nobody noticed and it's like, yeah, it's classic Lemmy. He was like, you know, but if I had my way, we'd never play that fucking song again. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know he hated it. I know he did. I mean, uh, it's, I suppose it's like any band who's, who, you know, it, not just a rock band, a pop band or whatever, who have a hit, more massive hits, and they have to do it over and over and over. It's, you know, I mean, it would drive me insane to be quite honest but uh, but then again that's the songs that put you you know put the money in the bank that gave you the lifestyle that you're living yeah exactly i was just i was just going to say you know you go you can hate playing that song but then when you you know you go back to your house <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly but you know lemmy never bought a house he never actually owned property he always rented and I remember this. this is actually this is a nice of spade story. I remember this. Um, uh, they had a, an accountant called Prathal Patel, a lovely little Indian man who was on the very top floor of uh, their offices in uh, Great Western Road. Right, tiny little office he had at the uh, top, and he was he took took me on to do my accounts. Right, and I remember taking my stuff up there. And he's going, oh, you're doing very well, very well, Mr. Jewell. You know, <laughs> he says, you should, you should think about buying property. I've been, and this is when I think Ace of Spades had come out and they'd done well. And I think No Sleep Till Hammersmith had just come out and gone in at number one 
uh, in the album charts, which was the first live album ever to go in number one in the album charts. And he's going, oh, Mr. Jewel, I've been trying to persuade Lemmy to buy property. He won't do it. He won't do it, right? And uh, I was like, well, I think I'm going to be in that same bracket, mate, because I'm not going to buy property, and I never have. I was very lucky to find a good woman who has her own property. You know, I, I, I live a nice life now. But I, I kind of understood where Lemmy came from. It was like, oh, if you, yeah, earn money, spend it. <laughs> money, spend it. Well, it's, uh, do you know what? It's funny. I was, I was, I was talking to um, to Danny from Weapon um, just the other yeah, day, yeah. and he and he was saying that when when he was living in West Kensington for a while, um, the band were were in a um, uh, were in a squat two you know a couple of streets over. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I don't think it was until Wurzel and. Phil Campbell joined that Doug Smith, the manager, actually, I don't know if he bought it or he rented it, but he rented the property that they all lived in. And I remember, I remember going round to that property, actually, on several times. And uh, it it was, it, I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a really nice house. Uh, and inside... It was actually quite reasonable considering who was living in there. But what amazed me was Lemmy was always building airfix models of aeroplanes um, and painting them, right? And they were all hung up from the ceiling, right? And I remember one time going in there and Dick Mick, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dick Mick, but he was like, um, I think he was the keyboard player or the guy who did all the synthesized sounds with Hawkwind, right? And Dick Mick was there and he introduced, and I was, I, I was just like, oh, fuck me, this is Dick Mick. You know, I didn't even know you were still fucking alive, mate, you know. But um, yeah, he was alive and we had a great afternoon or whatever it was, a lot of drinking involved. And all the way through this conversation, Lem is there putting together his airfix fucking model of whatever aeroplane it was. And, uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's moments like that. You, 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 you kind of, you, you don't expect. <laughs> that is, you know, yeah, that is, that is a bit, I mean, we'll put it this way. It sounds surreal all these years later. It must have been bizarre at the time. Absolutely. And I'll tell you another thing that he loved, plants, right? He actually liked putting seeds in things and watching them grow. Right. And I remember at one point uh, something happened where he he, he was he, he was fucked. He, he could either couldn't come back or whatever. And him asking uh, on a, I was in the office and telephone conversation with Doug Smith, the manager, saying Doug. Can you please go round to my place and water the plants for me? <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. That's not that's not you know bailiffs at the door or anything like that. Quick, there's an emergency. No, just go around and water the plants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so how did you? Um, how did you? I, I, I'm guessing by I'm guessing that you kind of fell into the role of of writing the notes for the tour program. Uh, no, I didn't. Did, I didn't write the notes. I didn't right. write the notes. I designed it. Ah, I designed right. It age. Right. Ah. I designed it, and, and I'll tell you how that all came about. Now, again, you probably don't know this guy, but there's a guy called Barney Bubbles, right? Now, Barney Bubbles was a designer who designed all of Hawkwind's uh, album covers, uh, all the amazing ones like Space Ritual, which was not just an album cover, it actually folded out into a huge poster and stuff like that. He also became uh, the designer and the, the one of the main guys at Stiff Records, do you remember Stiff Records? You've ever heard of Stiff yeah, Records? Yeah, very much so. Right. Very much so. Right, and the, he came up with the expression: um, "If it's not stiff, it ain't worth a fuck," or something along those lines. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, you know, it's like a, it was just like a piece of genius. And and Barney was a fucking genius. He was like he looked like a little pixie, right, and. He was always one of my uh, design heroes. He also used to design, for, I, I doubt you know this, was a, there was a magazine called Oz in the 60s, right. Right, which was a completely incredible underground magazine. There were two, actually. There was the International Times, which was known as It, but that was like a, a newspaper. Right? But there was Oz, which was the magazine, full-colour magazine. And Barney used to design quite a lot of the Ozzers. And I was I remember I was a kid. I was probably, what, I don't know, 14, 15, and going into W.H. Smith's. And they actually had a fucking copy of Oz in there, uh, which they would very soon after this take off their shelves. And I remember buying it just alone because of the cover the cover was like wow that is amazing i don't care what's inside i'm buying it and it was two shillings and sixpence which was my pocket money at that time and i remember sitting in the back of my parents car driving home and opening it up and on the third or fourth page it had a picture which had the word fuck on it in big letters and I was like oh fucking hell you know I'm, I've got a high this this one's yeah. going under the mattress yes you know the parents can't see this uh, but anyway Barney was involved with that and uh, as I say he was a great hero and um, I've done this one several times I've just looked in yellow pages or into a, a telephone directory and looked up people's names and they're there and I phoned up Barney and I said, you don't have any idea who I am. I love your work, but I've been doing a, a little bit of stuff for independent record labels. And I've done like holiday tour, pro, uh, holiday brochures and shit like that. Would you have a look at my portfolio and tell me what you think? And he was like, come on over. He, lived, he had a studio in Covent Garden. Um, and it was like, bring your portfolio over, come on over, and I'll look at it. And he went through it, and he was incredibly positive. And he went, okay, well, what, I, what I'm what i doing at the moment, and 
this is the guy who was doing, you know, he's doing covers for fucking Elvis Costello and everybody. He was like the hot fucking potato as far as design was concerned at this time. Because what I do is like once a fortnight, I'm going to invite six of you to come together in the studio and we have a brainstorming session, right? Which included smoking a lot of dope, drinking a lot of alcohol, and at the end of it, going to the pub across the road and drinking more alcohol. And I know what Barney was doing. He was stealing our ideas, right? <laughs> Which is absolutely, you know, as far as I'm concerned, no problem at all. Because, personally, at one point, I get a, I lived, used to live in a, 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 a tower block. We used to call it Terror Tower in London. And I get a phone call and I pick up the phone and I'm looking out the window. I've got this fantastic view of fucking London and it's Barney. And he's like, right, Steve, I know you've designed holiday programs and brochures and stuff, but have you ever designed a tour program? I said, no, but I'm sure it's, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's, you know, 12 pages, 18 pages. You know, front cover, back cover, blah, blah, blah. He goes, right, I'm up to my eyeballs. Would you be interested in taking on a project I've just been approached for? And I've got, absolutely, what is it? He says, well, it's a tour program for Blondie, right? And it was Blondie's 19, I think it's, it's either 76 or 77, and it was their first major tour of the UK, Parallel Lines Tour. Yeah. And it, it's the one that shot them into megastardom. Yeah. It, it, everything just happened on that. You know, that was just, it, obviously it's not the fucking program or anything that I'm, I'm talking about that fucking did it, but that tour was just when they released the single that went mega and everything just went fucking mega for them on that tour. And yeah, I did the program and uh, it was for a woman called Eve Carr, right? Now, Eve Carr was the wife of Doug Smith, Motorhead's original manager. And Eve had a, her own merchandising company. And it was, all, again, it was all part of this building in Great Greater Western Road where I was saying, you know, the accountant had an, an office on the top floor. Doug had his uh, his offices on the first floor, and Eve had her offices on the third floor, right? And I went in to pick up my check for the for the program, and she goes, "Ah, now my husband is very interested in your what you've done with this program. He's on the first floor. Go down, introduce yourself, and he's got he's got something he wants you to do." And I went down, and it was like, right. I love the program. Would you please design uh, the first program? It was the first ever program for Motorhead, and it was for the Overkill tour. Uh, or I, I always called it the All About Being Loud tour, uh, <laughs> because that—that's what we had on, the, on page two and three. It was just all about being loud, and some pictures of Lemmy uh, with his back. It was just a black and white program um a, a lot of great pictures and 
a because it's it was called all as I as I thought all about being loud. I put a load of pictures of hearing aids in it, um, and it, it it went down a storm. And from there there on, I did that one. I did the bomber tour. I did the Ace of Spades tour. I did the Iron Fist, and I did another Perfect Day. All of those tours I was involved in. So is that is that how you is that how you is that basically the story of how you actually became familiar with familiar with that, working for Motorhead is the, you know yes yeah absolutely and it's also the story of how I got the biggest step up on the ladder from going from doing minor stuff to major stuff because I then met Finn Costello. Uh, a photographer. I don't know if you know Finn, but Finn did. Uh, he did like Deep Purple's Burn. He did Kiss Alive. All uh, uh, Ozzy Osbourne's first, uh, uh, you know, Blizzard uh, of Oz. He did all the photos. Rush. You named fucking a lot of the early Rush albums. Finn did all the photography for those, right? Right. And I met Finn there, and Finn asked me if I would be interested in getting involved with doing Ozzy's Diary of a Madman. And right. again, that, you know, I've gone from one big step up on the ladder to like the, another big step up on the ladder within within a, within a few months, you know. And, and uh, yeah, and all through, it's, you know, eventually somehow ending up in, in, a, in an office with Motorhead's management. Uh, well, you know, obviously you, you kind of, you had a hero who you wanted to go and um, you know get an opinion from, and and yes. it, isn't it funny? It's like you know, once you set things in motion, it's amazing how many pe- people you sort of meet on the way, and they say, "Oh, actually, you know, could you do this and can you do that?" Yeah, and... absolutely, H. And you know what? The other thing that I was terrified of when I first did the the, the first tour program, right? I Mohead as a band frightened me, right? Because I knew all about the, uh, you know, the biker look, and I knew there was a lot of involvement with Hell's Angels and shit like that. But when I went into the office, and uh, it was only Lemmy and Filthy that were there for the first program that I came in, because obviously you know there's no computers back then. You have to do everything as a, a, a rough design, a rough layout, and show it to them. And do you know what? They were, they were such nice guys, and they were so uh, accepting, and they loved what you know what I put in front of them, and that just laid the foundation that we got on so well after that. But you know, going from thinking of them as terrifying bloody people to actually finding out that they're—I mean, Lemmy's—he's—he's he's a sweetheart. You know, as yeah. I say, you know, likes to grow plants, likes to make model aeroplanes, loves history, loves horses. His his eventual plan was in later life was to to retire and have his own uh, stables. Right, that never came. That that went out the window a long time. You know, after we discussed that idea you know because at that time motorhead 
weren't as huge as Motorhead became. They were just on the verge of it. I mean, Bomber had done well. Ace of Spades did well. Given, as you said, that you started out, the you know, your, your first work with them was Overkill. Um, when when Ace of Spades came out, presumably, you know, you, you, you got a first listen to that. You were, you were sort of well in the camp by then. When, when you, can you remember first sort of first, first listening to it? I, I remember, do you know what? Not really. I remember <laughs> ba- I'd be disappointed if you could. <laughs> no, vaguely, well, I tell you what, every time we went to fucking Motorhead's office, if you came out and you could still fucking walk, it was a fucking miracle. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, it, it, honestly, it was a fucking den of debauchery. Is that um, is that where you would is is that where you would have first heard it, or would you have got a, a sort of yeah? An no, advance? that's where I thought, that's where uh, Doug would have played it to me, and uh, and I do have a vague memory of him playing it, and but at that time, I was like, to me. Yeah, it's a fucking other Motorhead fucking album, Doug. They all sound the fucking same. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to do? I want a tour program. Here you go. Here's the photographs. Here's the words. Blah blah blah. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of like that. I mean, I I, I I love Motorhead. Don't get me wrong, but it it all just sounded the fucking same to me. Well, was was that you? Was that the kind of music you were into at the time, or was it pure? Or, or were Motorhead still that, a client? You know, you know, a client and a bunch of people you liked, but it wasn't H, necessarily your music. H. No, no, I loved. I mean, I uh, I grew up on heavy metal, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Taste. Right. Yes, uh, all those are all the bands that I went to see late sixties, early seventies at Malvern Winter Gardens. Right, that that period of time. It was crucially important as far as my musical education was concerned and to actually see the bands live. But I also liked pop music and it, I, I loved classical music. Um, uh, that was because of my father. And I also then later on loved reggae music. And I just love music. I mean, you know, anything sounds lovely to listen to and all, all you know harshly lovely to listen to I love you know that Pantera and fucking Slayer and shit like that but um, yeah no, my musical taste was always very varied always very varied right so you sort of motorhead from the minute from the minute you heard them um Obviously, you know, there's that unbelievable I t- sound. I, I tell you what what did it for me. As if, if Doug had just given me the albums and I'd gone home and listened to the albums, I, I, I'd probably honestly say, uh, yes, they're, they're good. They're great, right? You know, I like it. I like this. It's not something I'm going to fucking put on over and over again until... I went to see them live, and the first time I saw them live, that again was a game-changing moment. And then it became total sense as to what the band is about and why I should go back and listen to the albums. 
and did you did seeing them live also kind of make you think right okay um and did that did it inform your future design work of, of producing a a live program yeah, for the, yeah, for the yeah, live yeah, fans yeah, yeah yeah i remember doug i think it was the bomber tour and doug invited me to there were two times that one where i i was invited to take photographs access all areas uh when they were doing i think i think it might have been the overkill tour it was just prior to bomber coming out um at Camden Palace and then I was also invited to one of the shows at Hammersmith which they videoed and I was actually standing on the right hand side of the stage with a video camera just videoing the whole thing and that could have been fucking ace of spades you know but I, I honestly can't remember but uh, uh, no once I saw them live made absolute sense what the band was about as opposed to listening to the album right if i hadn't seen them live i don't think i'd i'd have you know understood yeah totally what it was all, all about but once you saw, i saw them live it all kicked in and fucked me it the power the fucking fierce force that they were just throwing out, it all made sense. It's like, yeah, now I know what Motorhead are about. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm fucking very proud to be part of this. Um, and, do, uh, do you think with the Ace of Spades album that it, that, that was also a, a, a kind of like the, the closest the band had managed to cap, had come to capturing that kind yeah. of live power, but this time they'd managed to catch some of it in the studio as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Bomber was great, uh, and the Bomber tour, obviously, because they had the the Bomber lighting rig. You know, that was exceptional. That was something that no one had ever seen before, uh, and it was like a kind of a gimmick that added to the whole experience. But yeah, I mean, when Ace of Spades, well, I mean, obviously the track Ace of Spades. I mean, you're never gonna fucking you know beat that well you you can obviously but it's you know as far as Motet was concerned that was it it was a definite defining moment of uh, laying down a mighty fucking foundation brick into the in the history of the band and you know all the, all the things that did I mean I've seen Lemmy talking about it and it's like yeah this this you know there's nothing fucking important in the song. It's just me talking about, you know, gambling and putting in some fucking, you know, cliche gambling fucking uh, lyrics. Um, and that's it. But but the song itself, it's just one of those that whenever I, even still, it's one of the few fucking songs that I, I love when I hear it, I do enjoy it. There's so many songs that I love that have been played to death that when I hear it, one of them, sadly, um, is like Blue Oyster Cult's uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, when that comes on the radio, it's, oh, no, not again. 
when Motorhead comes on, it's just like a breath of fresh air. And it's like, fuck me. You know, I was part of that. Um, and I'll tell you, right, let me tell you a story about the fucking tour program. Right? Let me tell you a story about fucking Ace of Spades tour program. Right? Um, when I used to go into the office, Doug would give me a whole pile of transparencies and black and white photographs, um, some words that someone had written about it, and a, a a page of credits that had to go into the uh, into the into the program. And he'd say, "Right, this is. I want this on the front cover, right?" And that would be it. That would be the only fucking instructions I was given. And I was like, go away, put it together, come back, show me, and then we'll go to print with it, which is exactly what I did. And we did. They printed 5,000 copies of, uh, of the tour program. And I remember going into the office. Again, it was probably to pick up my check and also to actually look at the finished tour programs that had just come in and Fast Eddie came in whilst me and Doug are looking through it and he picks it up and I think it was on page five there's a picture of him that I had chosen personally standing in his full motorhead leather regalia bullet belt everything by a river edge holding a catch of fish that he'd caught because he loved absolutely loved fishing right which not many people know about but he loved fishing and this picture was him holding his catch and he looked at the picture and he went fucking ballistic he just what the fuck that is not fucking going out, right? Fucking change it. Fucking destroy them all. Fucking, 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 fucking. Right? And, and Doug looked and goes, well, well, you know, no. And I looked and I said, Eddie, I chose that picture because it showed a side of you that most people won't expect you to be. I don't fucking give a shit. Fucking burn them. Destroy them. <laughs> And that's that's what happened. All five thousand fucking programs were destroyed. And sadly, when I had to move out of my place in London almost ten years ago, um, there were I had probably the only set of printers' proofs that still had the picture in. But when I moved, I was in. It was it was also. It was, it was a real fucking panic mover. I had to get out by a certain date, blah, blah, blah. And I left them all behind. Oh, and, no. and I fucking hate, hate myself for it because that was the only, 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 only copies that are left because we did, they did, they burnt fucking 5,000 programs. And we put a picture in of Eddie and Phil looking, you know, like Eddie and Phil, yeah, but yeah, that that's a, an Ace of Spades story. So he didn't. He basically it was it was 
he didn't he didn't want that that image of him. He, he, he didn't he, want he, that no, side he, of him he, that he, people he, weren't aware he, of. He didn't want that out. He in the didn't public. want people to know know yeah. about that. Yeah. He didn't want know about that but that's but also it's amazing from the point of view that basically um that he said right you know d- destroy them all and it happened because normally you know yeah. being around myself yeah, yeah. you know what i mean the management get involved all the other members get involved and eventually yeah. this person grudgingly usually just has to accept yeah, that exactly exactly yeah. no i think i think at this point you know they were like they were they were shooting stars at this point and it was like egos were fucking shooting all over the place as well and it's like if you don't do it i'm fucking out of the band right, right? yeah and 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 I'd, there was a lot of that shit going around then because they'd been on tour for i think almost 3 years constantly and they were they were really getting on each other's fucking nerves and you know they were about to start another what well, i think it was a 42 day tour of the uk and then on to other things there was also this was when they were going to america as well uh, because yes that's right filthy wanted to america when we go to america to uh, because it's ace of spades we're all going to dress up cowboys let's go out to america and find a desert to fucking shoot the, the covering and Doug's like no no I know someone in fucking uh, I think it's Barnet or fucking it's, it's, it's some quarry pit on the outskirts of London yeah. that the picture was taken taken at you know and that is and but like, that is so that is so sort of motorhead isn't it yes yes <laughs> You know, it was just brilliant. I mean, I've I've since heard people like Scotty and of Anthrax, you know, saying that he had that album and he was like, you know, there was these three wild, you know, banditos on the cover, yeah, and yeah. I just he just assumed they were like they were Mexican or Spanish or something. Yeah. And really, yeah. it's it's three blokes from England in a quarry. In a, in a quarry, in, I think it's I think it's Burton. I can't be, I, 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 I It's I know it's somewhere on the outskirts. It's a, it's a, a quarry on the outskirts of London, and Eddie wanted to dress up as uh, Clint Eastwood, which is why he's got the uh, the the poncho yeah. on, right? And uh, I mean, well, Filthy and Lemmy, you know, they're just doing their own thing. Uh, but uh, you know, I know I know that uh, that uh, definitely Eddie was a, a Clint Eastwood fan, and that was his, you know take on what he wanted to look like <laughs> that's brilliant though i mean uh, that that really is it's pro- possibly the um the the only quarry in britain that should have a blue plaque on it or at least yes. the, the yes. heavy metal equivalent yes. exactly no absolutely absolutely and apparently uh the sky uh because it was a, it was a, a miserable day the sky the blue sky that was added in afterwards um you know this is probably way before fucking photoshop and shit like that um but yeah that could i know that could be done because i was working on uh kerrang and stuff you know a few years later and i was always asking people to die oh look I, i want this 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 head cut out and this put in the background and they always did it 
was amazed how you know that they did, and and also how they did. I have no idea how they fucking did it, but yeah, they were also. Um, mate, you'd you'd be you'd be amazed with what they can do now. Uh, well, fuck me, mate. I mean, I I I play around with Photoshop a little bit, um, and you know, what used to take me probably about a week now it takes me probably about an hour. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. No, absolutely. Did you uh, did you get into did you actually get to any dates on the um uh on the yeah oh yeah yeah a space yeah, yeah, tour yeah. uh the Hammersmith the uh, uh I think that was towards the end of the tour it's, yeah it was and four I, dates at the end wasn't it yeah four yeah four dates and I remember going yeah exactly four fucking nights at fucking Hammersmith and mm. I remember going backstage. And uh, walking down the fucking corridor, and Hell's Angel came out of one of the dressing rooms, and he had like a, he just had this jumper on with a fucking Father Christmas design or something, and I was like, whoa, Father fucking Christmas, right? <laughs> and he took great exception. I mean, what what's wrong with that? You know, yeah. I'm actually pointing out the fact you've got Father Christmas on your chest. What's wrong with that? And he took fucking umbrage with me. I was like, you, you fucker, right? And Lemmy fucking strided out. And it's like, leave him alone, right? Just fucking leave him alone. And that's not the first time that Lemmy saved me from a fucking beating from the whole thing. <laughs> It happened several times. <laughs> <laughs> right, so they, they never quite acclimatised to the crusher humour, is that what you're trying to tell me? No, no, no. <laughs> really. But you know what? In all honesty, eventually I was accepted by them um, uh, when... Oh, who was the fucking president? Was it Marcus? He's just died, I think. Uh, but yeah, I used to, they used to invite me over to the... the uh, the clubhouse in uh, uh, where was it? Uh, fucking East End. It's somewhere in the East End, right? For firework, just for, uh, bonfire night and stuff like that. I always used to get invited over, and uh, you know we got on really well. And Josh, who's the stage manager at Brixton Academy, he's he's one of the angels, and I knew him when he was a prospect, um, and he used to come to the Hippodrome. Which you played, didn't you? You played oh, it. We 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 did indeed. In fact, I I've, I've still I still remember somebody one of the this, the guy who controlling the spotlight that night shining it in your eyes, and right. <laughs> and, and and it were, and you just giving this huge oh get that fucking light out of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the good old days, mate. The good old days. Absolutely, yeah. 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 But well, of course, we played it when it had become a, a bit of a, a a bit of a rubbish nightclub. Yeah, was that that was that in the early nineties? Yeah, that's when is that when Stringfellow? I think that's after when Stringfellow sold it uh, to um, oh, what they called Mecca. 
people who do the fucking bingo houses and all of that. <laughs> yes. One thing that I was I'm really, really happy with was that years, years later, I remember uh, after a Hammersmith show, uh, me and Lemmy, we ended up in the... Uh, uh, at the, the, the uh, there was a pub opposite the Royal Kensington Hotel that basically fucking stayed at fucking open forever. Yeah. And the two of us are in there. He's playing the fucking fruit machine. And I'm going, uh, I go, Lemmy, Wurzel, you know he's in a fucking dreadful state. Do you think you would ever possibly consider allowing him to join the band again you know um, and Lemmy stopped playing the fr uh, fruit machine and now to get Lemmy to stop playing the fruit machine I've done it twice right in my life <laughs> but it's it's you know you're in for a fucking tongue lashing and he turned around and he came and sat down and he just went into this whole spiel there's no way there's no way and I'm like look he's fucking dying mate He's absolutely, he's not going to be with us for fucking that much longer. Please, please consider taking him back in. Just, if, even if it's just me driving him down and he comes out and does an on-call with you. And he goes, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. And then they were, uh, whatever the next tour was, they played Brighton. And I got in touch with them and I said, look, I'm coming down to Brighton. I can bring words with me. Would you let him come out on stage? He goes, all right. And we got, and it was a brilliant, brilliant night. And do you know what? Lemmy and fucking Wurzel, I was supposed to drive him back um, after the gig and Lemmy insisted that Wurzel stay and he would look after him. And they had a, a, a fantastic night. And then a few weeks or days later they played Hammersmith and Lemmy invited him to fucking get up on stage at Hammersmith and that's the last time that they played together oh yeah. man that's a wonderful story yeah yeah and do you know what when I drove Wurzel down to Brighton he was sat in the back of the car I had a, a, a friend with me as well and he was sat in the back of the car and he was doing a crossword and he was he was so down. I could, and Wurzel was a very, he's one of these people that normally is, is full of life. Yeah. He was so, he was so down. And I could, I could, you know, I could sense that, you know, he's down. He's probably also wondering what the fuck's going to happen when we get there. You know, uh, anxiety, that's, that's shit. Yeah. And once we, once we got there, it was like a fucking, a golden box had opened. Everybody was so accepting to him. He just, you could see, you could just see how happy he became. Yeah, that, 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 was, light, it, that light came on again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, just, and I remember when I, you know, when I left to drive back to fucking London, he was like a, it was a, a transformation. You couldn't believe, and it was the same at Hammersmith. I can, I, I can only imagine. 
So uh, with the um, when they were when they were a three piece, you know, when it was just Eddie and uh, yeah, Eddie and yeah. Phil, was there was was the was the chemistry? You know, were, were there less arguments? Were there more arguments? Was it, you know... No, it was... no, no, i tell you what, uh, when we're coming up to Ace of Spades, mate, fuck me, there's not just arguments, there's fucking physical fights going on. Right. Uh, especially between uh, Eddie and Phil. That right. Fuck me, they would, they would, they would go, go into it. They would fucking go into it over stupid things, you know? Oh, it always but is. I, yeah. I, th- I think, as I said, because they've been touring for three years, almost, not non-stop, but more or less non-stop, um, and they just, they just fucking hated each other at that point. Although it was, you know, they were just on the fucking wave of of, of success that was going to get, you know, bigger and better <laughs> but Iron Fist reflects it it's like they've gone from fucking Ace of Spades to Iron Fist they're dressing up as fucking you know medieval fucking knights and I, yeah. I knew it was like no this is fucking wrong uh, everything's fucking wrong about it and I think it all came to a fucking climax when they were over in New York and Lemmy wanted to do a, or he did, uh, he was he did a single with Wendy O. Williams from The Plasmatics, yeah. uh, which was Stand By Your Man. Yeah. And Eddie was supposed to produce that and as soon as they started doing it, he walked out, he walked out of the, uh, out of the studio and and that was it. That was the the yeah. final straw, in in uh, as far as Eddie was concerned. That this band is just now just turning into a fucking piece of utter shite, and I'm leaving. The funny thing is when you were you, what you were saying there about the about the fights and everything around around the 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 Spades era is it's kind of you know for people listening to this who've, who've you know not experienced being in a band or whatever you've got to think of it as a as a, a very very intense personal relationship a lot like you know you have with with a, a partner or a, a you know a, exactly. a wife or a husband but also you're you're spending all your working time together as well and you live together and you've got you seem to be doing well but there's no money around that there should be and I mean if you imagine all of that pressure on any relationship it's a wonder there was times where there weren't fights yeah 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 no you're absolutely correct you're absolutely correct but as I say there were some fucking vicious fights and and filthy I mean you know he doesn't look fucking that fucking big but filthy mate he would go he would fucking seriously I would not want to fucking take a punch of filthy I also would not want to take up Eddie out of all of them Eddie was the one who was probably the most fucking vicious um, right. uh, Lemmy stood away Lemmy's a fucking peaceful character yeah. he doesn't want this I mean there's a story when Lemmy's playing the fruit machine and suddenly like you know a fucking cartoon Eddie and fucking Phil come rolling past him from 
the room next door to where the fruit machine is, battling out on the fucking floor. And, you know, and then he's like, yeah, here we go, carry on, put more money in, press the buttons and wait for it to fucking finish, you know. <laughs> so literally, literally like a sort of a, a, a parent ignoring a pair of sort of fighting dogs. Yeah, 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 exactly, 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 exactly. Oh, but, that's brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you an, uh, another story. I've told you this one. Um, when I used to, I think this was also probably around this time, when I used to go into the office, I used to have to sit in reception until Doug Doug Smith would uh, allow me to go up to the uh, the office on the first floor. And when I was stood, uh, sat in reception, the receptionist was a lady called Motorcycle Irene, right? Right. Okay. Who? <laughs> great character, absolutely wonderful woman, um, and. I'd be sat there and she's getting on with her shit and there would always be this brown paper bag which was folded at the top which was quite, not big, big, but quite big that was just on the side of the table and I've been there, I don't know how many times waiting to go up to the fucking first floor and the front door would, someone would press the bell, Irene would allow them to come in, and it would be a motorcycle courier, never took their fucking helmet off. All they did was just come in, bend round, pick up the fucking brown paper bag, and out of the door. And eventually, I said to, to Irene, I said, what is in that fucking brown paper bag? She goes, oh, that's a bottle of Jack, a gram of speed, and sixty pounds for Lemmy to put in the cash machine, <laughs> and it goes out every day, seven days a week. <laughs> Brilliant! Brilliant! Yeah. That is that is amazing. It's <laughs> Lemmy, Lemmy's rations for the uh, yeah, for the day. Lemmy's rations: a bottle of Jack, grab a speed, and sixty pounds for the cash machine. Oh man, yeah. that's brilliant! Well, look, Crusher, it's been, um, it's been, it's look, it's been awesome, and I'm sure we'll, um, I'm sure we'll speak again at some point because, um, yes, there are, there, you know, there's more stories to be had, but um, that's that's amazing, mate. I can't, I can't thank you enough for for sharing all of that. No, with us. a pleasure, a pleasure. Okay, mate. All right, mate. Take care. Lovely to speak to you, dude. Absolutely. Yeah, you too. Absolutely, H. Take care. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. Bye bye. That was fun. So much fun that I had to say that it was fun to nobody in particular once I'd finished the interview. Um, and I'm sure after listening to that, you're thinking, well, I hope I bump into him one day because he sounds like a lovely bloke and wouldn't it be great to go for a beer with Crusher? And the simple answer to that is yes, it would. Um, so that is episode two, done and dusted. We are two in. We have got plenty more people to speak to who have uh, unique insights into Motorhead, amazing stories, and hey, please do remember to subscribe to the podcast and tell everybody you know to do the same. Um, wherever you get your podcast, just hit subscribe, 
that every new episode will appear in your player, ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. You can download it over Wi-Fi, you can download it, you can stream it, do whatever you like, and please do share it. And for all information on Motorhead and the upcoming uh, Ace of Spades releases, please go to motorhead.com. It couldn't be any more simple, could it? You go on that there, internets, and you go motorhead.com. Simple as that and on there you'll also find access to all of Motorhead's social media and that's great because it saves me rattling off a load of social media handles and all of you listening going "Mm, yeah I'm not actually writing any of this down so there you go saved us all a lot of work motorhead.com two episodes down but the next one to come is with Chris Needs. He was along Lemmy's side as a trusted um, journalist. He went to bat for them many, many times. And um, it's it, it, the stories he has are incredible. They really are. So that's the next edition up. Get ready for it. Make sure you subscribe. That way it'll come straight to your player. And I'll talk to you next time on the Motorcast. Thanks a lot. Speak to you soon. I don't say agreed. The only gun I need is the ace of spades. The ace of spades.